up with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much that everyone was able to get here safely that came to Sunday school. Um, and we thank you for the people listening online as well, especially with how rough the roads are and how cold it is. We're, we're grateful for that. I ask that you be with us as we're getting back into the subject of the rapture, as we're getting back into the controversy between the church and Israel. These are things that your word is exceptionally clear about, but just for the case of thoroughness, we are trying to go through it. So Lord, I ask that you empower us again, as always, uh, to discernment, that you would help us to truly understand the specific original simple meaning of your word as we're looking at these things as we're observing the beginning of your church the church that you built i ask that you empower us towards that i also ask that you be with us in the service to come in jesus name amen good morning everybody we're going to be jumping back into the subject of the rapture focused on what has uh unintentionally become our main focal point of the study so far, which has been the topic of imminence. Um, and the reason for that is pretty simple. We're actually saving time. It sounds ridiculous, but we are actually saving time in terms of our study of the pre-wrath rapture position, the post, uh, post-tribulational rapture position, and all the other variances of those, those viewpoints. We're actually saving time on that because every single one of those viewpoints does not agree with the idea of eminence. Every single one. We are the only uh, viewpoint that would affirm the idea that Jesus can come back at any moment um, because there's nothing in the way of him coming back. And we went into detail when we studied that particular subject of eminence as, as far as like what the New Testament has to say about it. We looked at it, we saw the air of expectancy in the wording and all of the ideas attached to that. And we came to the conclusion that Jesus can come back at any moment. So we have the start period. We know that we don't know when it's going to start, but we know that it could start at any moment. But we also know the end period, which is something we're going to be getting into probably today if we get that far, um, which is going to be more of like a, a, a review of what we looked at in 1 Thessalonians and Revelation which is that we know the end moment. We know that it has to happen before the tribulational period starts. So we have two sides of this coin, so the rapture has to happen sometime within those two sides. Um, but that being said, every single other viewpoint about when the rapture will occur has to say that it cannot be imminent. They have to say that either the Antichrist has to make his covenant with the world and with Israel or the midpoint of the trib has to happen, or the wrath of God, which they try to differentiate between everything happening in the sealed judgments and trying to impute that into roughly five-eighths to three-quarters of the way through the tribulational period, um, and try to say that that's when the wrath of God really kicks in, in the bold judgments. But as we're going to be looking at in a very, hopefully not too far in the future, but uh, in the future is we're going to be interacting with what they have to say about eminence per their specific viewpoint. And that process is going to shrink because of the time that we put in right now. So that being said, we're saving a lot of time, not in the pre-wrath rapture viewpoint, which is surprisingly close to ours, except for 
kind of a misleading, we'll call it a route that they choose when they're wording their particular viewpoint, which Kirch made several references to in the Revelation study. It's kind of a, because we also believe in a pre-wrath rapture, like we do. Uh, but the whole tribulational period is God's wrath, not just a few specific events towards the end of the trib. That being said, um, they would actually affirm the distinction between Israel and the church. They would also affirm the future uh, fruition of Israel's blessings actually being attributed to Israel. Like they don't believe that the church actually takes over Israel. They don't believe we're taker overs. Um, they believe that we're partakers of the Abrahamic covenant. So like they have a lot of similarities to us, but we're going to be getting into all that quite a bit later because they miss out on this subject of eminence. So that being said, the post-trib group is the most infamous for going after the idea that J Jesus Christ could come back any moment for his church. So just, just by way of review, that's, that's why we're getting into this at such great depths is because it's going to save us time later. And I would rather not recapitulate every single thing we've said every time we interact with all the different viewpoints. I'd rather us do all the work now and then just make a reference to it as we're getting into those. So that being said, we looked at, to understand the argument, which is, if we go back just a little bit, why would the church have to go through or not have to go through the tribulational period if we know that the world's going to go through it, if we know that Israel has to go through it? Why, why on earth would the church even be in that? So that's kind of what we've been trying to hammer down by looking at who Israel is. We looked at the fact that she, as a nation, failed to live up to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. But that being said, that was just, a, that was just one of the covenants. That doesn't negate the four unconditional covenants either. They're, when they are actually able to take possession of the things that is their inheritance as a nation, is going to be based upon their obedience to God. But that doesn't mean that they don't get the covenant blessings. That doesn't mean that they lose those covenant blessings. So we looked at the fact that Israel has actually already been judged in large measure for their sin. But we also noticed that in the midst of their sin, they're also going to have a future judgment that they're being regathered for right now. At this little blip in time on the chronological map, they are being regathered for judgment. Post-judgment, we are expecting a biblical restoration of the nation of Israel. At the end of the tribulational period, there will be a remnant that survives, that goes into the kingdom, through whom the blessings of all the unconditional covenants find their fruition. So that's something that we're really looking forward to. But that doesn't happen except for the fact that the tribulational period purges off the rebels. We see two-thirds of the nation being killed. It's a terrible time. But the result of that in the tribulational period is that you have a remnant that learns to walk and trust in God not just for their eternal salvation, but for their physical salvation and their physical um, protection from the Antichrist. So those are things that they have to look forward to. Now, since we know who Israel is, since we've done all the homework on that in a summary form, since we know like what the tribulational period ought to accomplish through or what they ought to 
what has to happen to them during the tribulational period, we also really need to understand who the church is to now be able to answer that other side of this equation about why they can't be in the tribulational period. So to do that, we have to answer a couple questions about what is the church. Now, we made uh, vague references to the upper room discourse last week and the week before, just going over the fact that the church is something new. The church is something that Jesus posted as a future entity, which we're going to be getting into a little bit later. Last week, we talked about the fact that the church and Israel are both not synonymous, and the church doesn't usurp all of Israel's blessings, all of their future promised blessings of the four unconditional covenants, just because God is working through the church. And we actually looked and we saw that there was a reason for why God is working through the church instead of Israel. It's actually to move Israel to jealousy. That's one of the reasons he's working through this church that he made. That being said, we're actually going to be starting with this idea that the church is distinctively new. And this is something we started last week that we're going to be getting into. So I'm actually going to read, uh, if you could turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be reading the description of Pentecost, and then we're going to be moving on from there. So if we could turn there, we're going to be reading up to verse 13, starting in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. So this is a really important part in church history because this is when God was giving the church the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at a reference to this as we kind of observe this in the context of the arguments pertaining to the start of the church. Even in dispensationalism, you're going to find people that disagree about when the church started, unfortunately. A lot of people actually think it started in the Gospels with Jesus. Misunderstanding a basic concept that they think, well, Jesus is the one building the church, as we're going to be reading later in Matthew 16, 18. So he must have started it and started building it in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, Missing out that everything in the Upper Room Discourse is talked about in future tense. Everything talked about in Matthew 16 is talked about in future tense. Um, Jesus is fully capable of building a church after he has ascended into heaven. Just in case that was under uh, concern or dispute, Jesus is not um, less powerful than he was when he was on earth. He can still build churches even up there. So that being said, in verse 37, that's where we're going to keep reading. We're going to skip over Peter's speech and his response, which is very good, but 
quite lengthy. So we're going to try to pertain to what we actually need to be reading. So in verse 37 of the same chapter, chapter 2 of Acts, it says, Now when they heard this, they were heard what? Peter's speech. When they heard Peter's speech. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children as well as all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with all, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and all had things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need." Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and by breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. That last verse is what I wanted to really bring to your attention, which is that they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Because, again, that is what is largely being talked about here is that God is building his church. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18. Now, <laughs> you could get into, into the weeds about um, this, is, this chapter, the verses that we just read, are surprisingly often quoted by uh, people that claim to be Christian socialists. That is a completely different issue. Um, where they're basically saying, well, the apostles were selling all they had and giving it to the poor. We should be subsidizing irresponsibility as well. They don't say it like that. But (laughs) um, notice the government isn't forcing them to do it there, though. Anyway, Matthew 16, 18 is what I'm going to read next. Um, And this is where we'll actually start in verse 13, because the context of this matters a lot, too. It says, now when Jesus came into dis." into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Valid question. Very good question. And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, as one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will, I will, will being the key word, build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, that rock being the description in verse 13, which is that the Son of Man is Christ. Christ is the rock that the church is being built on. Um, But again, the thing that we need to note here is that this is Jesus talking to one of the main apostles. Um, Some have mistakenly argued as the first pope. Um, He's not saying that I am building my church right now with you and you're the beginning of my church. He's saying, I will build my church. That is a future tense word, which is pertaining to the fact that he's not building it yet. In fact, if you look 
forward from Matthew 18 on, you'll notice that was not the focal point of the rest of the book of Matthew, this building of the church. Um, so that being said, this is kind of the framework that we come into when we're looking at where the church started. Now, a couple things that we need to note about the church before we actually finalize where the church began. So we're actually going to go to the book of Ephesians uh, in chapter 3. So if we could turn there. So we'll start in verse 1 and we'll go to verse 12. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to, speak, or to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring light that is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things." so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory." What is he actually saying here? He's talking about this entity, this new entity, the church, which was a mystery in ages past. This did not exist. Nobody even had a conceptual knowledge of it, which is the first half of the coin that we need to look at. The second half of the coin is that even though they didn't have a knowledge of it, God from eternity past had prepared this. This is part of the plan of God. Um, people often criticize us because they... Uh, they miscategorize dispensationalism as plan B theology, which is where God said, oh, Israel didn't work out. I guess I'll have to do something new. Why not make a church, right? Nobody believes that. Um, I w I've yet to actually find someone who testifies to that and actually affirms that viewpoint. Nobody believes that. Um, but what we do believe is that we, we meaning humanity, didn't know what God was planning we didn't know that the nation of Israel would reject the Messiah, although you could, uh, if you were a good Old Testament scholar who had a cheat sheet of what the future was going to look like, you could find it all over the Old Testament. Um, but this idea that God was going to create a new man, the church, is a mystery. This is something that was new. So that's just something that we need to kind of keep in mind as we're moving on. So if we can actually go back a couple chapters to chapter 1, we're just going to read... Uh, verse 18 through 20, where it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age or in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, just to put it back into context, what was he just talking about in the first chapter? He was talking about things that are true for Christians, things that are part of our identity, things that are true about us, like our predestination as sons, that he is uh, before eternity past decided that everyone who believes in him will be adopted as sons. Um, again, that everyone who believes will be adopted as sons, right? Not that he predestined specific people. It doesn't matter. So you, you know the point that I'm trying to make there. Um, we're not even going to get into Calvinism, but that's just something that we kind of have to keep in mind. Now, I know we went from chapter three to chapter one, but we're actually going to go to chapter four now. Um, so if we go to chapter four, we're going to start in verse seven where it says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, a ca- he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So again, it's relating to this fact that Christ is the one that's building the church. Christ is the one giving those gifts and he is the one building up the body of Christ. Because again, we're getting this again, cannot emphasize enough that this is a new man that's being talked about. This is a new creation that Christ is building because in the midst of this, as we're looking at the apostles, both in what we read in Acts chapter two and here in other places, is that this is a process that we're getting a unique uh, viewpoint into by reading these chapters. Because again, we, we have a well-established church that has existed for 2000 years almost. And, uh, So these are things that are obvious to us. But if you look at Acts chapter 2, back to what we were just reading about when we started, they were doing amazing things. And what you notice is that the giving of the Holy Spirit was done through a mediator, which we don't see anymore. All you have to do is believe. You could believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation and roll back over and fall back asleep, right? But you'd have the Holy Spirit. You'd have all these things being true about you. You didn't have to have somebody come and actually give you the gift of the Holy Spirit where the apostles, to designate their authority, to designate their position as people who were giving unique new truth to God, God had to, he didn't have to justify that authority, but he had to show that that authority was authentic. So he gave them miracles. He gave them authority to give the Holy Spirit. There was a physical sign of the Holy Spirit in this transitionary time of the book of Acts where they would be able to do some sort of gift of the Holy Spirit that was revelatory that they didn't need to learn. Those were all things that were done, which we don't see right now. Again, if someone were to come into our church and the Lord were to convict them, they were to hear the gospel and they were to get saved, there wouldn't be some monumentous miracle or occasion that happened, except for the fact that 
A person who was once going to spend an eternity without God is now regenerated, sealed with the Holy Spirit with the promise of redemption and going to be spending eternity with the Lord, um, which is a miracle in itself. But there was no physical sign of that because it's already been well established. The authority of the word of God has already been well established. So anyway, that wasn't the time right here. So we're actually looking at a unique uh, scope into this time period where you had apostles, where you had people, miracles, and all these other things that were more, which technically could still happen. We're not limiting God, but they were so commonplace because they were there to validate the authority of these apostles in this new time period. Now, just to hammer out the point that I was making about when the church started, we're actually going to be going back to the book of Acts. Um, Because if you're wanting to figure out when the church started, which a lot, again, it's unnecessarily ambiguous. Um, The book of Acts is pretty clear. So we're actually going to be starting in the first time the church is actually mentioned in the book of Acts, which is in, if I'm remembering correctly, Acts chapter 5. So if you can go to chapter 5 and read just verse 11 through 12, it says, and or we'll do this. We'll read verse 9. In the midst of Ananias and Sapphira, the context of that is they were lying to the church, trying to make it seem like they were more uh, pharisaically righteous than they actually were by saying they sold their property, property for a certain amount and then not actually uh, giving it all to the church. Again, they had every right to do with their money what they wanted to, but they chose to lie to the apostles in this infancy stage of the church. And they were dealt with pretty severely. So if we start in verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard of these things. Okay, so there was a church. There was an entire church that had great fear because this person just died for lying to the Holy Spirit. So if we actually go back to chapter 1, that's going to be the next point that we read. If uh, Chapter 1, verse, uh, we'll just read verses 1 through 5. It says, The first account I composed Theophilus to all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me." For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, okay, so they were waiting for this Holy Spirit that they were going to be baptized. Now, they probably had no idea what that meant, but they were still being obedient to their Lord. Um, We know from Acts chapter 2 that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit there, but it doesn't say, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, this is when the church begins, read and listen, right? So we actually have to go to Acts chapter 11. So if you can move to Acts chapter 11, that's where we're going to be reading from next. Just um, by way of review, almost more than anything. So we will start in um, 
we'll start in verse 15. It says, And I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us. Who's us? The church. At the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the, Holy, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then they heard this and they quieted down and glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So it's making a reference back to that original time where they were empowered with the Holy Spirit, which we know was Acts chapter two. Um, again, it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be speculative. We can understand Holy Spirit was what the apostles were waiting for at the beginning of the church. We learned that from Acts chapter one. We learn about what that thing that God gave them, the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two. And they even remember that in Acts chapter 11, when they're looking back at what happened and identifying that is when the church began. So again, it doesn't need to be, uh, it doesn't need to be complicated, but because people complicate things, we need to take the time to be as specific and precise as we can with our wording about it. So that's kind of what we, we know the church is distinctively new. We know by definition, it's a mystery, something that didn't exist before, that God knew about before, that is now being brought forth um, from the mind of God, always from the plan of God. And now we know that it started with Acts chapter 2 in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now we know from Ephesians why the Holy Spirit was given. We learn about that and all through the entire book for the most part. Um, because the Holy Spirit gave the church gifts. The Holy Spirit is a pledge of their inheritance. The Holy Spirit uh, indwells them permanently. Um, these are all things that we have right now to ourselves because we believed in Jesus, because we trusted in him for our salvation as part of his church, his universal church. Now, we're going to get into some more of the minutiae as we get forward, but we're actually going to move over to the book of 1 Corinthians because that outlines, or I shouldn't say outlines, but it emphasizes the point that I was making about when this happens. So if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to read verses 12 through 13, where it says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Because again, it's... You don't get a different Holy Spirit indwelling you if you're a Samaritan than you would if you were a Gentile or a Jew. It's one Holy Spirit, one God indwelling one new people, which is the church. It's not creating ethnic distinctions. It's not doing any of that. Um, all it's doing is it's uniting them into one body. Now, if we can move forward to the book of Colossians uh, chapter 1, that's where we're going to be reading from next. Chapter 1, uh, verses 16, 15 through 18. It says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Because again, he is our sign that we know that once we die, we have a promise of resurrection. We have a promise of uh, eternity with Christ because he demonstrated that he was the firstborn upon those uh, who were resurrected. Now, we're, I, know we're, I know we're bouncing around quite a bit. Um, so if we go back to Ephesians, back to chapter 1, I believe we already read this, but I want to do it one more time. On the same token, he put all, in verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Because God... Christ Jesus is the head of the church. He is essentially, he's the pinnacle of our, of our church. And that's something we have to keep in mind. And the church, very differently, is his body. Um, and that body consists of many individual members. So, again, we could get bullet point after bullet point about things about the church. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. As I'm try- in summary form, just trying to give a lot of things that are true about the church. The things that we need to know as far as our distinctions are concerned, is that this is a new man. Israel was not a new man. Israel existed before the church was made. And as we're going to be looking at, there are a lot of distinctions between Israel and the church. We're going to have a big comparison uh, by the time we're done with this. But I'm just trying to hit some of the main points about Christ being the head, the church being the body, this being a new man, this being a mystery. Uh, These being things that didn't exist before Christ imputed the church with the Holy Spirit to empower them for godly living, to empower them for service, to empower them for eternal salvation. Um, Again, so many distinctions that we're going to be getting into in the next couple weeks. I'm hoping to finish this argument next week. That is me. I'm being as optimistic as I possibly can. I was hoping to finish it today, but that's that's not going to happen. So... Um, If you could turn your Bibles to Romans, uh, we're going to start reading in chapter 7. Starting in verse 4, yeah, we'll just read verse 4. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So one of the things that we're going to be pointing out as we look at these verses is that there's always an in order to, or for the sake, or that, that being said. We're not just joined to the body of Christ to be saved. We're also joined for service. Um, and in fact, that's what he says in the, in the latter part of verse 4, that we were raised, uh, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Just kind of make a note of that as we move forward. If you move forward to chapter 12, we're going to be reading verse 5. It says, 
starting in verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Just make kind of a mental note as we're going through these verses how many times it refers to us as in Christ. We hammered that out a little bit when we were studying what the rapture is because we uh, affirm the idea that the idea of in Christ is a technical term relating to the church. Um, pertaining to this specific analogy of us being his body. Um, that's super important in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because it is the dead in Christ who are raised first. Again, that's what we were looking at before because what people see if they don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is dead in Christ is anybody who believed in God ever. Um, and so they put that resurrection farther in the future after the tribulational period, when in reality, um, it doesn't necessitate that by the wording. What it necessitates is that we understand it to be the church. Now, what we're, again, we're putting all the pieces together later, but what we learned today is that the church didn't exist prior to Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2 and forward, everyone who dies in Christ is a member of the church. And we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that all the people who died in Christ are actually going to raise first, followed by those who are alive and who remain, who are going to go to, what does John 14.3 say? To the Father's house with him. Again, not promising that we're going to go back down to the earth, like is argued by so many people. So just kind of, as we're looking at these things, just kind of keep those things in mind, um, because it's uniquely particular to our study. So that being said, uh, verse we just read verse 5. So let's actually move back to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to start in chapter 10 and then move to chapter 12. It says in chapter 10, starting in verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Because again, this is something that we need to kind of keep in mind as we're moving forward. We are all part of one body. It says in chapter 12, we're going to be reading a little bit here, starting in verse 12 all the way to verse 27. It says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were also made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. For if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would all the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which are 
we deem less honorable, on these we would bestow a more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas the more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, and that all the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Because again, that's the, that's the vision that we're seeing through what Paul is saying. He's giving just this outline of the body of Christ. We're supposed to be united as one body. Again, we're going to be looking at that a little bit later, but we're, we're not from a specific nation. We're not from a specific ethnic group. The church is from all nations, from all ethnic groups, from all peoples and all tongues. Um, there is no distinction in terms of who is eligible in this age to become a member of the body of Christ. Not so Israel. You had to be an ethnic Jew. And if you were not an ethnic Jew, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become part of the Jewish nation, you had to do what? You had to proselytize yourself. You had to take on the whole law in its entirety. And uh, very different than the church. We have one condition. You have to trust You have to trust in what Jesus said. Now, you need to know what he did for you and who you are actually trusting in the work that he did on the cross. So there's a knowledge portion that has to precede that. But the one condition post knowing what he did is to simply trust, to simply believe, to have faith, Um, which are all synonyms for the same idea of no longer trusting in yourself, which is religion, trusting in what we can do to make ourselves righteous with a holy God, but rather trusting in what he already did in our place as our substitute. Drastically different. Now, notice what I'm saying isn't uh, how the Israel was actually supposed to become saved, as we understand the term. I'm talking about becoming part of the church versus part of Israel. In order to become a believing Israelite, you had to simply trust in God. You had to simply believe in him. Uh, same condition for being declared righteous before God. Very different for being a member of the church because believing is all you need to do to become a member of the church. I'm not talking about a local church, um, although it's pretty darn similar to become a member of Flushing Bible Church than it is to actually become a member of the church. Um, Everybody here is a member, so they know how that's done. But in any case, it's very different to become a member of the nation of Israel in the dispensation of law in that time period where Israel was the focal point. Um, Drastically different. So we're going to be getting into a little bit more of that next week, but just kind of keep in mind, like the distinctions are there. They're so specific. And as we're getting into, there are, there are many, (laughs) there are many distinctions between the church and Israel. So Again, that should start to give us clues about why we don't think the church can actually be in the tribulational period. Why we think the church isn't permitted to be in the tribulational period might be a better way to word it. Um, Because it's both unnecessary, promised against, which would make it unpermitted. Um, And again, there's really no reason for why. And we're going to be getting into the minutiae of that later. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord, we thank you so much for your work through the church. We thank you that you have made us, that this is something that you have built, that you've convicted the world, unbelievers and believers of sin, righteousness, of judgment, that you call all people to renounce sin, to walk away from that, to understand that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves righteous before a holy God. And you're convicting the entire world of that, Lord, and that's fantastic. Now, we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us with no options, that you have given us the option of trusting in you for our salvation, that you have empowered us towards that decision. You've, you've made it an easy decision. Um, these are all things that you've done, and we're grateful for that. I ask that you be with us, that you continue to, as you said in your word, empower us for godly living, um, to do the deeds that you would want us to do in this life. I pray that you make those deeds obvious, that you help us to, uh, to do them. And Lord, I also pray that you give us discernment as we're looking at these complicated matters, especially as we're going into the book of Revelation. I ask that you give us discernment and help us to have an ear to listen to what your word would say. I pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.